do take your seat again. And uh, happy Father's Day. Any dads who are here, just raise a hand if you're a dad here. Happy Father's Day, dads. Give them all a round of applause. Um, all of us, of course, had a human father, um, and that may be a mixed experience around the church. But God is a heavenly father, and he's in our passage in Acts chapter 17. So would you turn back to that as I pray? Page 1113. God, our heavenly father, reveal to us now something of what you are like that you revealed through the Apostle Paul. Speak to us from this, your word, amen. It's odd to think of the great Apostle Paul just hanging about, but that's what he seems to be doing in Athens. Paul has been escorted there by his friends, uh, and that was for his own safety. Uh, and he left instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So now he's waiting for them in Athens. He's just hanging around. Or as Charlie illustrated a few weeks ago, he's muddling along. Of course, he'd known about Athens from his childhood. Everybody knew about the empire's intellectual center. Now, for the first time in his life, Paul is there, waiting in the cultural capital of the world. So he decides to do Athens. What was his reaction? And what should ours be when we find ourselves visiting for the first time one of the great cities of the world, especially one with a rich history, aesthetically magnificent, intellectually sophisticated, but dominated by a non-Christian ideology? Perhaps think of Paris or Beijing, Florence, London. Luke tells us what he saw, what he felt, what he did, and what he said. What he saw, verse 16, was the city full of idols. The word literally means smothered in idols. Now, Paul was no cultural Philistine. He was graduate of the universities of Tarsus and Jerusalem, and he could have been spellbound as he did Athens on his week off dazzled by the Acropolis, the Parthenon, the sheer splendor of the architecture, the history of philosophy, the, the birthplace of democracy. But instead, what he saw was a forest of idols. One Greek writer put it, there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. And another, a Roman author wrote, it's easier to find a god there than a man. And that's what Paul saw as he tells the Athenians in verse 22, I see you're very religious. However, rather than being impressed with this, look at what he felt about it. Verse 16, he was greatly distressed. He had a fit. The word is paroxysm but not a paroxysm of irritation or anger. It's the word often used in the Bible of holy passion for the honor and glory of God. Paul's pain and horror was at the depravity of giving to idols the honor and glory that's due to the one living and true God. 
That's what he felt stirring in him. And it's what we should feel visiting Hindu Delhi, secular Berlin. Or for that matter, that we should feel visiting the comparative religion classes of many London schools. And haven't you known that the multitude of faiths in these big cities of our world has often led people to losing confidence in their belief in Christ? I've known many people like that. But as with Paul, they should have the opposite effect. Paul was appalled. Now see what he did. He engaged in dialogue. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue, in the marketplace, day by day, with anyone who happened to be there. He didn't just despair or cut himself off or become rude or cynical or aggressive, although it seems the sarcastic aggression did start from others. What's this babbler's trying to say? Now, he was entirely positive. He started talking about Jesus, the, the no ordinary man, who had come back to life, and how this was such good news. And you can't help admiring Paul. He was, he was as completely at ease talking in the synagogue as we might at Alpha or Food Bank in church, or talking in the street to casual passers-by as we might at Hyde Park Corner or Clapham Junction Station, or engaging in the Areopagus Council as some of us might have opportunity in Parliament or a civil service department, or a university debate. He started from where they were. Verse 23, let me talk about a God who even by your own admission is unknown to you. So it's a brilliant strategy, and we need the same versatility in London today. Now, let's look more deeply at what Paul said. More precisely, what did he talk about? He began in verse 24, the God who, and went on to proclaim the living and true God in five ways. First, he focused on the temples, the shrines in Athens, and he used them to explain that the one true God is our creator. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. The positive statement about God is that he made the world to be our living quarters, our dwelling place. And what a wonderful world it is that God has put us in. But he doesn't leave it there. He therefore makes the negative. Read on. And does not live in temples built by hands. Uh, presumably, Paul at this point waves his hands all over the scenery around him, the magnificent temples, but he says to his hearers, dear friends, this is ludicrous. You think you make a house for God to live in. He made the world for you to live in. If the Athenians felt they had to build a house for God to dwell in, 
You see, immediately you've got a true picture of the pagan view of God and of other people. That God is in some sense localized and dependent on us for his existence. He has to have a house built for him. Paul says, you're absolutely wrong. He made the world for you to live in. Your thinking is totally inside out. In fact, he turns their thinking upside down, or we might say the right way up, as he dismisses the pagan view of God. Now, that kind of view can be in our thinking when we talk about a church building as the house of God. Uh, Christine and I were at a wedding yesterday out in the country, and uh, over the doorway were the words, this is none other than the house of God. That's incidentally a quote from the Old Testament. And I looked at it and I thought, I thought to myself, well, no, actually. But that thinking can come and creep into the church. Any attempt to, to localize God, to imprison him, maybe not so much in the confines of our man-made buildings, but our other structures, our programs, our denominations, containing God in our ministries, thinking that God should work to our plans and in our spaces, that we're making space for God. Secondly, Paul looks at the offerings that were being placed in the shrines. And he used this to explain that God is our sustainer. Read on verse 25. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Do you notice again a negative and a positive as there is in each of these points? But this time he starts with the negative and then follows with the positive. Now it's a marvelous negative, isn't it? That God is not served by human hands. As you pass the sanctuaries in Athens, you could have seen people putting food, offerings, flowers, sacrifices, as you can still today in Hindu temples, such as the ones Christine and I visited in Delhi and Calcutta a year or two ago. Putting things there for the gods to provide them with what they needed. The gods were thought of as being hungry and needing to be fed by us. So written into the pagan ideas of God is that the God wants to get something out of their devotee and that you must satisfy the God's hunger by bringing something to them. Now again, I need hardly say that we can be infected with that idea. As churchgoers, we often have the idea that as long as you go to church on Sunday, all will be well. You make your acknowledgement of God, you pay your weekly rent, surely that's what he wants from us. What else would he want? But the moment your mind is enlightened, it becomes absurd to think that Almighty God would be satisfied with my going into a building once a week to, so to speak, nod at him. And yet there are multitudes of our fellow citizens who have an idea of God like that. It's just paganism with a Western Christian veneer. 
I'm not incidentally trying to dissuade you from coming here Sunday by Sunday or from your wonderful, generous, regular giving. But positively, it's a superb truth, isn't it? Look at verse 25. He himself gives to all men, all human beings, life and breath and everything else. So how absurd to think that he who sustains life should himself need to be sustained. That he who supplies all our needs should himself need our supply. He gives you your life, your heartbeat, your brain impulses, your ability to multiply cells from the moment you were conceived. He gives you your breath, your lungs, the air we breathe, perfectly suited to us. It's only we who have polluted it. That's not God's fault. And right that we should pray about it as we did just now. He gives us our very life and breath. It's a moment-by-moment gift from God, the sustainer of life. What he created, he sustains. He gives you everything. Food to eat, the warmth of the sun, sleep for rest, clothing for protection. Again, once you get a true picture of who God really is, that he's put us in this world that's not only perfectly made for us, but perfectly supplied for us, all that we need, life, breath, everything. Paul says you've got it completely wrong. Let me turn your thinking upside down. You think God is dependent on you to satisfy him. You are dependent on him for everything. Now, do you see the question he's answering in all this? Who is dependent on whom? Who provides for whom? Dads, since it's Father's Day, did your children provide a home for you to live in? Or did you provide it? Do they supply your meals and your clothes and your pocket money? You say, I wish. Or do you supply theirs? Of course, there may come a day when we're so old and doddery and our children will provide an income and a home for us to live in. But when that happens, older people find that very difficult, becoming dependent on their children. It doesn't feel right. Now, this is the reminder. We do serve God, but not to meet God's needs, to meet the world's needs, to serve one another in the church family. That's why we've been encouraging this just now. And to serve the world that he loves. Well, now, Paul then turned from the shrines, the temples, and the offerings in them, to point out the ceremonies that he watched. This would have been offensive to Athenians who had a a kind of Hitlerite notion, like the Aryans, that they were a superior race. He uses it as he watches the ceremonies, the rituals, to teach that God is Lord equally of the whole human race. Verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. See, he's alluding to their elaborate rituals, seeking. But then he adds, though he's not very far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. Now, what Paul is saying here is that they, they share, these Athenians, the same flesh and blood as everybody else. And this rules out all racial discrimination. All people come equally from God, from Adam, and share the same human life. God is Lord of all, despite the Athenians' remarkable achievements. And no nation, no people, Christian or not, are outside his rule as Lord. But why has God done that? God did this, he says in verse 27, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. He's looking around at all these rituals and he's not terribly hopeful. But you can imagine how Paul is engaging with them as they say, yes, Paul, that's exactly what we're doing here. We're seeking after him. We're feeling after the gods. Can't you see, see the signs of it all around? But then comes the shattering negative. He's not very far from each one of us. So why you need all these ceremonies, these rituals, when the one true God is right in front of your noses? Why, even your own poets have written, in him we live and move and have our being. He's not a distant God you've got to go on a long search for. So here's the point. You think you have to search for the elusive, exclusive God with all these ceremonies when all the time he's the present, very near, inclusive Lord of all. Now, we don't have elaborate rituals in here on a Sunday. We do have 10 weeks of the Alpha course. But do we believe that anyone can find God on week one? Or not on week one at all, quite outside it? Or in a moment, in a fortnight's time, when Rico Tice comes to us? Paul turns his attention now to what he saw in the shrines as well, the idols themselves. And he uses them to teach that God is our Father. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, he's our Father, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now, all human beings are in one sense children of God. That is by creation. We become children of God in a deeper sense when we receive Jesus into our lives by adoption. We become part of his family, the family of the church of Christ. But in a weaker sense, all human beings are children of God by creation because we were created in the image of God. Like father, like children. 
and we bear something of the stamp of our Creator Father. But therefore, here comes the negative. Each of these, you see, has a positive and a negative. We shouldn't think God is like these images, he says, that you fashioned out of gold, silver, and stone. If you do that, you inevitably debase God to a superstitious object. And that's what they had done. How ludicrous to make a representation of God, your own manufacture, and then bow down to it. Now, I don't think we make metal images of God so much as mental images of God, our own opinions, the God we imagine. Don't you hear people say, I like to think of God as this. I like to think of God like that. We hammer out our own ideas of God. We make God in our own image. Paul says, you and I are not entitled to our own opinions about God when God has made himself known, told us what to think of himself by showing us himself in Jesus. So again, this total inside out and upside down. Don't think you can make God in your image. He made you in his image. Do you see it's the other way round? Finally, Paul focuses in on one of the shrines, just one of them, and the inscription over it. Like the blue plaques that you see all over London houses, so-and-so lived here in 1879 or whatever. In his walk round Athens, Paul had spotted one which said, the unknown God lives here. So Paul comes back to the word unknown and ends where he began with human ignorance. But now he adds that ignorance is no excuse. It is blameworthy, and it will be judged. He uses the plaque to explain that God is our judge. Look at verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That means to turn to him. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, by the man he's appointed, and he's given proof of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, again, the negative and the positive. The negative is that God has not judged the world yet. And Paul says, you think God won't judge because he hasn't yet. But he will because he's already set the date. And in verse 31, Paul tells them, about the judgment to come. The judgment, he says, will be universal, the, the world, the whole world. It will be fair with justice. It will be personal by a man. It will be definite, the day's been fixed and the man appointed. And it will be certain. God has given proof of this by raising the man, this judge, from the dead. Now, this, of course, challenges our lack of urgency 
to help people come home to God. Paul fronts up to the great intellectuals of his day, and he tells them about one of their own inscriptions to the unknown God, and he says, you're totally right, you are ignorant, and your ignorance is culpable and will one day be judged. You oughtn't to think like this. He talks to them as if they were naughty schoolchildren, the great professors of the nation. Do you really think God needs a house to dwell in? Do you really think he wants these flowers and offerings? Do you really think he's far away and you need to go through all these tedious rituals? I imagine it must have taken Paul a long time to explain these five truths about the one true God. That he's our creator, he made us. That he's our sustainer, we owe our whole life to him. That he's our Lord, very near to us. And if he seems far away, that's not because God has moved, but we have. That he's the father of all humankind, so there's no need to invent our own ideas of God. And that he will be our judge. And in his patience and love for us, he's given us time and opportunity to turn to him. Paul must especially have dwelt on those last few words. The gift, raising him, Jesus, from the dead. Don't you wish you'd been there to hear it? How he explained that before God comes as our judge in the future, he's already come as our saviour in the past. In Jesus, he died to forgive our sins. And he was raised to give us eternal life. Well, his method is breathtaking, isn't it? He begins where they are with the unknown God. And he ends with Jesus, the God we can all come to know. And I'm not surprised at the threefold result. It's often the same today. Some believed, some disbelieved, and some said, I want to hear more. And I don't know, but there may be even in church here today, some in each of those categories, some who this morning say, I believe it. I've believed all this for years. Others saying, I don't believe that. And others yet saying, I think I'll explore this more. And if that's you, don't come next Sunday, because there'll be nobody here. But do come the Sunday after and hear Rico Tice. Let's stand. <laughs>